I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry and I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And this is the continuing story of the attempt to bring hippos to the U.S. as a livestock animal. Uh, and in the first part of this two-parter, we talked about the meat shortage in the U.S. in the early 1900s that initiated this uh, desire to brainstorm new animals that might fill in that meat gap. Uh, and we talked a lot about one of the men in particular who worked to bring hippos from Africa, who was Frederick Burnham. And today we're going to pick up with another man who was brought onto the project uh, by Louisiana Representative Robert Broussard. And then we will discuss how all these men worked together and what happened to this hippo plan. So there's a little uncertainty about exactly when Frederick Duquesne was born. Allegedly, it was December 21st, 1877, in the Cape Colony in South Africa. There's some confusion in part because his life was more like a series of concocted details and varying identities. Almost all of his biography comes with question marks. Even his physical description shifts depending on the source. His hair color is pretty universally described as dark although sometimes dark means black and sometimes it means brown. Likewise, his eye color is sometimes brown and sometimes blue and sometimes hazel, depending on who's doing the telling. Yeah, he's. we've talked about con men before and how it's often difficult to pin down their biographical details, and he definitely falls in line with that whole system. Um, his father was a hunter, and he was often away from the family. 
And so his mother and his blind uncle Jan raised him for the most part. And during his youth, he watched as hippo carcasses were butchered for meat. Uh, and he and the other kids would collect the unused fat to sell to soap makers from France. See how everything's connected? Again, I didn't mean to connect to our bodies turning to soap episode, but I kind of do on that one by accident. Duquesne was in Belgium in military school in 1899 when his family sent for him to come home. He was needed to serve in the Boer military in the Second Boer War. So at this point, the Boers were being run into prison camps by British forces, and the homes that they were forced out of were being destroyed. It's estimated that at their fullest, these prison camps contained 160,000 Boers, 25,000 of whom did not survive the ordeal. To deal with being vastly outnumbered by the British forces, the Boer military, which was pretty ragtag, took to a more guerrilla approach to warfare. Duquesne really excelled at this looser, more stealthy style, and he wound up working as a military courier. This conflict could be its own episode easily, but during this conflict, the British warfare tactics against the Boers were brutal and horrifying, and Duquesne's family was not immune. His father had died not long after Fritz had been called to war, and Duquesne eventually learned that British troops had brutalized and murdered his uncle that had helped raise him, and his sister as well, and that they had brutalized and kidnapped his mother. Disguised as a British soldier, Duquesne found his mother in a concentration camp. She was, at this point, barely clinging to life. Uh, she had an infant with her that was conceived with one of her captors who had raped her. Both of them were suffering from syphilis to a point that they were too far gone to be saved. Uh, so they were basically dying the most horrible way imaginable. And this, not surprisingly, is believed to have significantly hardened Duquesne. This event really is always pointed out as like the moment where he shut down a little bit. He became a, a much colder human being at this point. Despite being captured on several occasions, there were two documented and then more were suspected He always managed to escape, although one of his escape attempts involved using a spoon to dig a tunnel in a wall, only to have the wall collapse and pin him there when he tried to go out the tunnel he had dug. There's also a tale that during one of his stints as a captive, he managed to seduce the jailer's daughter. Yeah, basically everything you might read in like a a penny novel of the time happened to him. So again, we don't, these are largely his accounts, so we don't know how much of it's true and how much of it isn't. But both of those are fun to think about. Uh, Duquesne's biggest escape, though, which is said to have happened after he was captured while plotting a particularly massive explosion, was actually orchestrated through Morse code. He collaborated using the code with prisoners that were in other cells. These men, there were three of them all together, jumped into the sea. They were still bound at this point, and they managed to live on the run for several weeks before they reached a port town where Duquesne actually became a pimp for a brief while. Again, his story is so wacky. Uh, he only had that job for about a week, just long enough so that he could steal the identity of one of the Johns involved in this prostitution plan and set sail for the U.S. under that assumed name. Duquesne's charm was so effective that he ended up, after a time, becoming an advisor to President Theodore Roosevelt on a plan to travel to Africa and hunt wild game. Once he had rubbed elbows at the White House, he used that credential to bolster his image and his career. At first, he wrote newspaper columns about the president's trip, and then he turned his position and started writing smear pieces about how Roosevelt was actually a pampered tourist. 
He even went so far as to try to have the president prevented from returning to the United States by suggesting that he was going to bring back a deadly contagious disease. Yeah, it seems like Duquesne was not so much about loyalty as he was about maximizing his own benefit in any given situation. And this is just one example. Uh, and around this same time, Conman Fritz had also started up a one-man touring stage show. And this was called East Africa, the Wonderland of Roosevelt's Hunt. So he was still trying to capitalize on kind of the fervor and excitement around this trip Roosevelt was taking. And it's actually because of this one-man show that Louisiana Representative Broussard found him. So at this point, as you may recall from our first episode in this uh, two-parter, at this point, the U.S. was dealing with what they called the meat question, which was how were they going to feed all of these people that had immigrated into the U.S. and the bolstering population as they were running out of meat. And this meat question, as it was called in the press, really threatened to chip away at the idea that the U.S. could sustain its own people and continue to grow. Uh, you know, it was kind of a point of pride as well as being an issue just of survival for a lot of people. And so Representative Broussard, like many other politicians, really wanted to solve this food gap problem. Once the idea of introducing hippos to the South came up, Broussard sent a field agent to survey the Louisiana swampland and give an assessment about how viable it was going to be to introduce hippos into that environment. The report was titled Why and How to Place Hippopotamus in the Louisiana Lowlands, and it indicated that the swamps would provide a great environment for hippos. It was actually estimated by an official at the Agricultural Department that a herd of hippos eating through the swamps free range would produce an estimated million tons of meat each year. Word also circulated that hippo meat was delicious as well as potentially plentiful, particularly the brisket area. So just in case anyone doesn't know cuts of meat, uh, the brisket is normally a cut of meat from the lower chest of an animal. And the New York Times dubbed these proposed cuts of hippo meat from this brisket area as lake cow bacon. So Representative Broussard was winning people over with this idea. His supporters really thought it was an ingenious solution to the whole multiple problems it was set out to address. A lot of them volunteered to help with capture and transport of these beasts. He had not only come up with a plan that seemed like it could solve the meat shortage and the water hyacinth problem, but it also appealed to the sense of American pride and problem solving. So the whole can-do attitude. Of this hippo plan, Lippincott's monthly magazine wrote, quote, This animal, homely as a steamroller, is the embodiment of salvation. Peace, plenty, and contentment lie before us, and a new life with new experiences, new opportunities, new vigor, new romance, folded in that golden future when the meadows and the bayous of our southern lands shall swarm with herds of hippopotami. Like, have you seen a hippopotamus? I know. It sounds so idyllic. <laughs> but it does. It's homely as a steamroller that is going to charge your face and trample you to death. <laughs> yeah, they they were under the mistaken impression that they were very docile. No, no. Because they're big and lumbering in most depictions. If you've ever seen a hippo run, it's terrifying. But in most depictions, you see them kind of floating in the water looking very chill. I think that led people to believe... Yeah, if there With were some false testimony along the way <laughs> that they were going to be completely easy to handle. If there were an award for like the the most angry, dangerous herbivores, 
I think it might go to, to hippos. So in March 1910, a bill was introduced in the U.S. House of Representatives called H.R. 23261 by Broussard. This bill proposed that $250,000 be appropriated to import animals into the United States for useful purposes. It came to be known as the Hippo Bill. With Burnham's influence, the bill was endorsed by former President Teddy Roosevelt and prominent news outlets, which included the New York Times, were praising the hippo concept. Plans for hippo ranching were starting to gain serious support. Mutual friends connected Broussard, uh, who was called Cousin Bob by his constituents, uh, with Burnham. And the men first met the morning that the bill was introduced for discussion. And Burnham had previously attempted to secure funding for an animal import project of his own, like completely separate from this. But it actually got bogged down by politicking in Washington. But now Burnham felt like with Broussard, he had a political ally and they might actually get some traction. When Burnham spoke to the Congressional Committee, he urged them to consider the fact that most of the animals Americans eat were imported from Europe, with the exception of the turkey. So why should hippos be seen any differently? He felt like after the initial adjustment, hippo meat would come to seem just as natural a part of the North American diet as beef or chicken. I have to admit, when I read that during my research, it gave me such a giggle, like just the thought of... Of course, hippos are a natural part of our lives because they're so not. Additionally, Burnham pointed out that other seemingly exotic animals uh, had been imported in more recent times, such as ostriches. He actually brought up the camels that we talked about in our U.S. Camel Corps episode. And to bolster the argument that imported animals, no matter how alien they may initially seem to the U.S., often fared well once they were imported, uh, he mentioned that he himself had seen camels. These were the offspring of those that had been part of the abandoned military plan to use them, uh, thriving on their own in the American Southwest. So to Burnham, this absolutely sealed the case. It provided clear evidence that adaptation of imported animals was absolutely possible and even highly likely beyond what we expected. I guess they were not really aware of what was happening with rabbits in Australia. (laughs) (laughs) So Duquesne's testimony before the committee was more theatrical. Here's how it opened. Quote, I am as much one of the African animals as the hippopotamus. End quote. He told the hearing that hippos were easy to raise and domesticate and that they were perfect animals for livestock and that the meat was delicious. So obviously we know that... This is, a lot of it is false. Uh, Hippos are widely regarded as one of the most dangerous species in Africa. He also suggested numerous other animals they could consider importing from Africa, including giraffes and elephants. So between Burnham's confident, logical approach to the issue at hand and Duquesne's enthusiastic flair and alleged expertise in handling wild animals, the hearing really convinced a lot of people that Hippo ranching had a very real future in the United States. So the two men traveled to Louisiana with Broussard to discuss next steps so that they could set up the New Food Society. Despite having been enemies, literally assigned with killing one another during wartime, the pair of them uh, seemed to have a, a lot of respect for one another, and they were really united by this one common hippo goal. Yeah, a lot of accounts will say that... um Burnham really felt like Duquesne had gotten kind of a a raw deal out of life and that if he could kind of help him along this path, 
of kind of like legitimate enterprise that he would help make a better man out of him and he could really help him turn his life around. But of course, he was a flim flam man <laughs> even during this, um, as evidenced by the fact that he was talking about how incredibly easy it is to domesticate hippos. Uh, at some point while they were forming this new society, uh, an inventor named Elliot Lord joined the group. Uh, it's unclear how this exactly happened, how he became part of it. And there's some speculation that he kind of just managed to insert himself into what had been a trio with no invite at all. He does seem to have rubbed Burnham the wrong way, in part because he wanted to go immediately to potential financial backers asking for money, whereas Burnham wanted to take a little time before doing that and put together a full detailed plan for what they were then calling the New Food Supply Society before they started asking people to donate. He did not want his friends and associates, because it was a lot of people that Burnham knew that they were going to be approaching, to feel pressured to buy into something that wasn't thought through and could potentially cave in its infancy and basically be throwing their money away. During a lecture at the Humane Association of California, Burnham's desire for a clear plan was really apparent. He said, quote, let us not make the same mistakes again. This nation has reached a stage in its development where we should take stock of our assets and make full use of them in an intelligent manner. The country had really overused its resources as it established and then overthrottled the beef industry. So with the hippo plan, Burnham was insistent that a more careful strategy should be established from the very outset. Now, if you have ever been part of a startup or a fledgling project that had difficulty getting off the ground, the way things start to play out at this point uh, may sound very familiar. These four men all had very different approaches to this new venture, and it caused a lot of problems. Elliot Lord seemed to want to do a lot of glad-handing and hustling for backers without much in the way of actual money materializing from these efforts. Duquesne was writing article after article about African animals and their adaptability, and he felt like he was the only one doing any real work, and he was doing it at his own expense. So he started to feel put upon about it, which is very funny to me because he was making things up. (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't like he was spending a lot of time on research. No, he also grew frustrated that some papers were crediting other men for this idea, and he wanted to get the attribution, especially because he felt like it was his personality that had given the hippo plan real credibility. Yeah, he wanted pretty much all of the credit, even though really he was just kind of a jazz hander in that whole group. Uh, Burnham, meanwhile, was speaking with colleagues. He was giving occasional talks about organizing the new food supply society. And he kept trying to stay positive, but he was really getting frustrated at the lack of real progress as well. And he even kind of sympathized with Duquesne. It was like, I know this is not going the way we thought. Uh, And Broussard, who, you know, had initially put this whole thing together, seemed to be really busy with politics. So... He would answer queries from Burnham, uh, but he would simply tell him that nothing was really happening yet. He was still laying groundwork. He was no real progress had materialized. Burnham went to Washington in early spring of 1911 to talk to Broussard about reintroducing the hippo bill. As part of the plan, Burnham would go to Africa once again to look for suitable animals and gain additional information to help build out the plan. But he never made the trip because the revolution in Mexico meant he had to drop everything and look after some other business dealings there. 
Yeah, just as Burnham's other work called him away from the hippo plan, the other men that were involved in this project eventually got absorbed in their other activities as well. The hippo bill was never like the entire focus of any of their work or lives. You know, they all still had other things going on the side. So in short, the whole thing just kind of fizzled out. I would like to say thank goodness. Just because based on, like, I don't actually know whether hippos would wind up flourishing in the the southeastern United States, but based on other efforts to do things by introducing non-native species, I just imagine a giant barrier wall walling off all of what used to be Louisiana and possibly yeah. adjacent states also with, like, a big sign saying Louisiana is overrun. With hippos that will kill you. (laughs) I feel like you're going to have hippo nightmares after this. I might, but first we're going to have a break for a word from a sponsor. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode, hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I am the ferryman. 
In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So... While things had kind of fizzled out, that's not really the end of the story. Um, as his focus on setting up the new food supply society waned, Frederick Burnham uh, worked in Mexico. He was setting up copper mines and other projects before he moved to Tulare County, California, for a quieter life than Pasadena offered. Uh, Pasadena had been quiet when he and his wife first moved there, but eventually it grew into a bigger town, and he didn't like that. He wanted to live out in the middle of nowhere, so... He also became heavily involved in the preparedness movement. Duquesne had been a very busy man, both before and after the Hippo Bill initiative ground to a halt. So, as we mentioned earlier, he was a con man, and that kept him busy for a while. Yeah, in addition to using his connection to the Hippo Bill to get funding for a variety of ventures, uh, from things like banquet events where he would speak about his knowledge of African animals, uh, to trying to stage a trip to South America where he would film, uh, and then return to the U.S. to make it into a multimedia event detailing his trip. He basically was just trying to parlay his connection to all of these people into more activities and money for himself. The start of World War One really shifted Duquesne's alias work into high gear. He was in South America when the war broke out with his wife, and he sent her home to the States. He still held a firm hatred for Britain left over from the Second Boer War and the destruction of his family. So he thought the U.S. should join forces with Germany to crush Britain. And if the U.S. wouldn't, he would do his part to bring his sworn enemy down. It's a whole other story that could easily be its own episode, but he basically assumed more than a dozen other identities as he attempted to sabotage Britain using his explosives knowledge. Yeah, he was busy. He was, had some connections with the Germans, um, was basically on kind of a, a revenge trip still based on that previous uh, war that he was part of. And his work led him eventually to being wanted for murder by Great Britain. So he did the only sensible thing for a con man, and he faked his own death. <laughs> he basically planted the story in the media using one of his aliases as a byline, and he like sent this in as a freelance writer. So it got picked up and reported. But then he decided pretty quickly after that that he actually didn't want to be dead. So he instead made up a crazy story that kind of painted him as this hero and that he survived this attack. And no, no, we thought he was dead, but really he barely survived. Duquesne was finally arrested in New York for insurance fraud in late 1917. Burnham had been consulted by police when they realized that the man they were hunting had worked with him and Broussard on the hippo bill. There is so much more to both Burnham and Duquesne's stories. Each of these men, as I've said a couple times, could easily be an episode on their own. And they very well may be at some point because, like, seriously, Duquesne even ran a spy ring in World War II. There is a lot to talk about with both of these gents. But back to hippos, 
uh, now we have plenty of meat in the United States and we don't have hippos. So how did that happen? So eventually the idea that people had been focusing on for such a long time of bringing in non-native species into a space that couldn't be farmed through traditional means, i.e. these swamplands, was replaced by the idea of landscape engineering. So instead of finding uses for seemingly unfarmable land, uh, agricultural industry found ways to turn that land into usable pastures and feedlots. As for the water hyacinth that the hippos were supposed to be eating... That is still a problem. Cool temperatures outside of the South keep it from spreading quite as far, but in the country's more warm, moist areas in the South, it has to be really carefully managed. Uh, and Frederick Russell Burnham eventually died of a heart attack in 1947. He was 86 at the time. And Duquesne died in 1956 at the age of 78. Yeah, after he had done a stint in prison. Like I said, there's... <laughs> There's a lot of interesting tales that go along with those two men, and uh, I actually hope to tell them at some point in time. Uh, in the meantime, though, I will tell you a tale of email, and it is uh, another cool connection to history that someone has. And this is from our listener, Haley. And she says, I love your show. It helps me through housework and other boring activities. And I super love that you did an episode on Philo T. Farnsworth. So that one was a while back, but she just recently wrote us. She says, Philo is my great-grandmother's cousin. I actually found that out by accident. One day in fourth grade, when we lived in Idaho, I read his name in a textbook and saw that he was in the same area of Idaho as my great-grandma. My great-grandma's name was Vonda Farnworth. There was a long-standing story in the family that three Farnsworth brothers arrived in America together, and however, at Ellis Island, one brother, my great-great-great, question mark, grandpa, accidentally had his S dropped. With this story and other evidence, I approached my mom. And when we looked at our family trees, lo and behold, there is Philo T. Farnsworth, a cousin. I didn't know a whole lot about him, so I appreciated your podcast on him. I was super excited to realize that he went to Brigham Young University since I graduated from there last year. Haley, that's so cool. It's such a cool connection to history. I always love when people realize that they are related to or otherwise connected to someone we've talked about. I sort of feel like it's that thing that I never let go of talking about. But like we are all connected to history and we're all part of it. And that's why I love it. So if you would like to write to us, you can do so at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're on Facebook.com slash History. We're on Twitter at History. We're at MissedInHistory.tumblr.com. And we're on Pinterest.com slash History. You can purchase Stuff You Missed in History class goodies for yourself or your friends or loved ones at mistinhistory.spreadshirt.com. If you would like to learn a little bit more about what we talked about today, you can go to our parent site, How Stuff Works, type in the word hippo in the search bar, and one of the fun things that comes up is Amazing Animals, the Hippopotamus Quiz. And they are quite amazing, if deadly. Uh, if you would like to research that... Uh, you can do that at our parent site, as I said, HowStuffWorks.com. If you would like to connect more with us, you can do so at MissedInHistory.com, where Tracy and I have put together uh, show notes for all of the episodes we've worked on together, as well as uh, an archive of all of the episodes of the show ever, and the occasional blog post. And you can check that out at MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Hey. 
MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the Ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.